0: Lord's Day of this calendar year, as we've noticed the last lesson or two, we have attempted to settle in our minds some thoughts that may aid us in greater service to our beloved Master above, as we considered the fact that it's time to serve the Lord, and as we studied this morning some interesting and powerful thoughts to aid us day by day as we allow the past to be the past and look forward using our abilities and skills in that which lies ahead. In this lesson this evening... As you can see, by virtue of the title, not only in the bulletin, but also on the wall to my left, we shall discuss matters relating to in times of crisis. And the text that we just considered from the closing chapter of the book of Habakkuk is ever so pertinent and so prevalent as we consider the impressive message to be found within it. I would ask you to enter into a sojourn with me over the next few moments this evening as we ponder the character of crisis and what should be the Christian's response to that crisis? But first, let's note some introductory thoughts to guide us on our way. There is certainly no question that this planet, this earth upon which we live, is a marvelous abode in many ways. In fact, it is specifically told to you and me in Isaiah forty-five eighteen that the Lord God of heaven fashioned it to be inhabited. It did not come about by accident. It did not come about by happenstance. It was fashioned purposefully to be inhabited. In fact, astronomers often indirectly give you and me great assistance and comfort when they peer their telescopes and see these worlds that are not meant to be inhabited. They lack atmosphere, they lack water, they lack a source of energy like a sun nearby. God fashioned this place, this planet, to be inhabited. But as we look upon that, we thus also see the testimony of it round about us day by day. The exquisite beauty of a flower and the perennial changing of the seasons, just two matters that remind us time and again of the glorious handiwork of God's creation and what He's made. It would also be fair to note, though, that when we consider the handiwork of His creation in terms of life, the plateau and level is raised so enormously higher the pristine, remarkable character of the human frame, the body, and what it permits. Did not the psalmist say in Psalm 139, verse 14, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right way well. Thus, to contemplate that alone leads us to know there is a great God, and what wonderful and marvelous things he has done. To begin the lesson in that way, though, might we also quickly note All the glorious, pristine goodness that we see in the world must also be taken in tune with the character of so much badness that also seems to happen. Crises and troubles, difficulties and catastrophes seem to also abound. Maybe we've each faced them at some point or another. To contemplate and even mention them lets us remember that this lesson tonight is something we may each face at some point. We as a nation may well again face it in time. There was a Great Depression at one time. Other difficulties, perhaps in warfare or otherwise, may yet come our way. What should be the Christian's response to a crisis? Tonight, let us look at four things that may aid you and me as we strive to prepare ourselves mentally so that we shall be able to properly address a crisis perhaps one that'll be a national one in character, perhaps it'll be only a personal one. Either way, it would be a good thing for us to consider these matters. The first thing to notice is in fact this one. It is not my intent at this point in the lesson, certainly, to bring upon each of our minds a thought and a character that is so gloomy and dark. It is not my intent to cause worry and a great sense of ill feeling on the part of anyone, but I thought it would just be a good thing to begin the lesson by reminding us of that which we so often see anyway on news, on other things of which we may be aware by way of information. You and I realize we live in a nuclear world now. We understand that there are nations that possess the capability of nuclear weapons. Some of those nations seem more trustworthy than others. Some of them appear to be rogue states. There are even nations such as Pakistan and one of their principal leaders was just assassinated not many days back. We can't help maybe but ponder and worry about the nature of what'll happen if some nuclear weapon falls into the hands of a person whose ideals are less than noble. But that's only enough to get us started. On the 11th of September, 2001, we know our nation itself felt the brunt of a terrorist attack. And how many more have often been mentioned throughout the years that not only we, but other nations have dealt with? Could another more serious one one be coming in the future? Not only terrorism, we are constantly told by scientists of the threat of a pandemic as it relates to bird flu. This particular strain of difficulty, which at this point, Scientists have no vaccine for, no cure for, and if that were to become rampant, how many millions could be slain by it? Notice also in the Middle East, there's constant difficulty and trouble. Nations over there, it seems, are not able to get along. Jordan, Israel, Syria, Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt, and the list seems to continue. What would happen if some individual were to come to power in the wrong way in that area? Could that person begin an international conflict? There's the constant thread of matters relating it would seem to that part of the world. We understand the global economy. What would happen if great difficulties were to arise? Perhaps many, many people could suffer greatly. To state all these things is to not state anything with which we're not aware. But it is a reminder that indeed we live in a time that in fact can well be described in this way. Is it not safe to say that we, in fact, do not live in a world that can be called paradise? This world as we know it is not a paradise. Though God fashioned it to be inhabited and though he made it in such a fashion to exhibit his handiwork, the curse of sin has brought so much ugliness. It has brought so much pain. It has brought so much to tarnish and mar the beautiful character that it once had. In fact, there are now troubles, crises and catastrophes on every hand, and in light of all of that, how should the Christian respond? What way might you and I approach these matters to help us if we were to face great and trying times in the near future in our life? May I submit that there is no golden thread, if you will, that is the pristine answer, but I would say quickly that God has stored within His Word four things that can give us great meaning as we approach them, and if we could fully pattern our lives by the things contained therein, we would find a great victory over any catastrophe or crises that would be brought to you and me. Let's begin by looking at the first of these things that we should plant in our mind. It has to do with the recognition and the realization that these crises and catastrophes of which we speak are the result of the fact that this world is a fallen one. As we turn back to the book of Genesis, we learn rather quickly and rather well that God in Genesis 1.31 looked upon that which he had fashioned in six days of creative activity and said, All of it is good, and it's very good, he would say. That is to say, when the earth was fashioned, and this universe, the entirety of the cosmos, God looked upon it, and that included again earth, and it was good. However, two chapters later... In the opening saga of Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve made a tragically foolish decision. They chose to disobey God. The sentence and reality of sin entered this world, and it has not been the same since. We certainly can appreciate the fact that there is still the recognition, just as Paul would affirm in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Solomon uttered it in 1 Kings 8, 46, There is no man that sinneth not. Sin is a real part of the world in which we live. It wasn't just a choice Adam and Eve made. You and I make similar choices and we choose to disobey. The sins, then, are those that have brought the difficulties, the curses, the pain and anxieties and anguishes upon this world. We live in a fallen place. It's not a paradise, Once sin entered it, it lost the pristine character of that beautiful place that once was. Adam and Eve came to realize that in part, didn't they? Recall that they were chased or forced to leave that beautiful Garden of Eden. And when they left it, there, of course, was such that they were not permitted to re-enter it. Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. To say that we live in this fallen place reminds us of the rampant nature of sin. How many are there around the world in the over six billion in its population who choose and it seems so greatly to pursue matters of sin rather than godliness? In Jeremiah 51.5, this now was written centuries and centuries ago, but God through Jeremiah said the land is full of sin. Doesn't that seem an apt description of at least certain portions of the world in which we live? In Zephaniah 3 verse 7, that noble but minor prophet of the Old Testament loudly cried again in the words of God, My people rose up early to corrupt all their doings. It's almost as though they strove to see how much sin they could commit before dinner. Maybe you and I see also a world in which that happens, it seems, far, far too often. To say those matters remind us time and again that this world is one in which so much evil goes on and all of it's the result of sin. That reminds us though, doesn't it, that when we consider a crisis, the character and the greatness of it, perhaps we may appear to see the overwhelming nature. If we will prepare ourselves to know that such things will occur and that they are a part of a fallen world, we'll be better prepared mentally to understand it. But that only leads us to the next point. Not only the realization that these crises are a result of a fallen world, but what about my place and yours in it? Are Christians susceptible to these crises, or by some means of God's providence, are we exempt from them? It, in fact, is such that we understand and should realize that we, too, are called upon to face them. God's people have never been exempt from those matters brought upon this world. I've listed a few examples just to remind us of how often in the Bible God's people faced crises, faced difficulties, and faced troubles. I began it in Exodus, the second chapter. Here God's Hebrew people, the very ones through whom the Messiah would come, were subject to hard and rigorous labor in Egypt. And they cried unto God for deliverance. God heard them, of course. But might we never forget, they did labor and hardly in the case there relating to the rigor brought upon them due to their Egyptian overlords. Not many chapters later, in Numbers 21, verses 1 to following, we also remember that snakes came amongst the people of Israel and thousands died because of poisonous snake bites. Were God's people there providentially protected from the snake bites? We do remember that Moses was told to raise a brazen serpent, and those that would look upon it were healed. But the snakes did come amongst the people of Israel. Yet again, might we notice the interesting scene in Judges chapter 6 and 13? On this occasion, the children of Israel again were terribly persecuted and afflicted on the one hand by the Midianites, on the other by the Philistines. God's people were not providentially protected in either of those cases. Rather, God raised up deliverers. One's name was Gideon, the other Samson. Through them, God did deliver His people. We're beginning to see an interesting scene of events unfold, aren't we? And some principles that may aid us greatly. In the opening two verses of the book of Ruth... We remember that beautiful love story, how it began with, in fact, Ruth and her husband, Elimelech, being forced from the land of Palestine to Moab because of a severe famine. There was a shortage of food, difficulty in light of providing for one's own family. And this was in God's chosen land, the land of Israel. It's an interesting scene to also consider with me, 2 Samuel twenty-four fifteen. Here with David as king, 70,000 Israelites slain at one time. Pestilence came upon the land. One more time, we see a crisis. And one more time, God's people suffered. Later on in the Old Testament, 2 Kings 6, the children of Israel so severely afflicted, this time by a terrible siege, the famine was so great, they even resorted to cannibalism. They ate children, their own children, Did God's people suffer? Absolutely. Did God's people find themselves in such a position that they were physically suffering and in crisis? Absolutely. Later in time, we also consider Joel 1, verses 1 and following. A plague of locusts came upon the land of Palestine so severe that everything virtually was consumed. In fact, in that very book, we read that the Difficulty was so severe, certain portions of the worship in the temple were suspended. They didn't have the means, the olive oil, to proceed with it. That only reminds us of the last couple, one of which was that terrible and grave captivity that awaited. In Second Kings chapter 17 and 25, the northern kingdom of Israel, off to Assyria, they went into captivity. The southern kingdom of Judah, of course, off to Babylon, they went. God's people suffered then, we should thus not think that we should be exempted today. For consider the New Testament and some of the same matters that occurred even there. In these instances, what was it our Savior declared in John 15, especially verse 19, that discussion is a bit lengthy, but at one point he said, Be not marveled if the world hate you, it hated me first. We read also in 1 John three thirteen similar words, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We thus should not be shocked and surprised if, in our life in Christ, the world hates us, and as a result of that, will cause affliction or persecution or personal difficulty on our behalf. In Acts 8, verses 1 and following, there were those wonderful saints in the area of Jerusalem who were scattered abroad and went everywhere preaching the word. But notice, they were persecuted. They were perhaps threatened and forced to leave. It's in that very context. In the next chapter, Paul possessed letters whereby he could imprison Christians. You and I would certainly call that a crisis. If someone showed up at the church building door and handcuffed every one of us, took us off to imprisonment, and there left us, not because we had committed criminal crime, not because we had thwarted the federal government, but because we had met in open assembly in pursuit of doctrine and truth. There are those around the world in such circumstances. You and I, of course, realize that in our study of history, many have been the times that those have similarly been approached. No doubt the book of Revelation stands as the pristine example, doesn't it? We studied about those with the mark of the beast, those with the very character of the name of God on their forehead. And did we not see those that were underneath the altar slain for the cause of Christ? Revelation 6, verses 7 through 10. Those matters remind us times could again come to the point where we would not have that wonderful freedom we have. We would call that certainly a crisis. As we look at things 3 and 4 in a moment, we'll see more clearly how we might respond, but let us first see that we should not think we're exempt. We shouldn't think that just because we're Christians that God will somehow providentially not allow us to suffer crisis. One of the last things I listed there reminds us of what happened to Stephen. Stephen, of course, was a faithful follower and he preached a beautiful sermon in Acts chapter 7. But when he closed the sermon, or at least near to the time he came close to closing it, those to whom he preached were so enraged by that which he proclaimed, they picked up rocks and proceeded to kill the preacher. You see, Stephen was greatly persecuted, was it, it cost him his life. It's fair to say in light of that, that we ought not be surprised when crises come our way. They may be related to our nation, they could be related to my health or yours, and we each appreciate how difficult those times can be. In the third place, in addition to realizing the fallen world in which we live, and realizing that we as Christians are not exempt, Let us look at a third thing that we are told over and again to never let fall far from our mind. As we face a crisis, we should be ardent users of prayer. Those who frequently and often resort to prayer. I've listed some passages for your consideration. It's safe to say that if the matters of which we pray were to come to fruition, many, many of the crises of the world would be averted, completely eliminated. For when you and I pray that others will come to appreciate the gospel and be faithfully obedient to it, if that prayer were answered, if they would in fact heed those things of which we pray, oh, how wonderful and differently our world would be. There are many examples and passages that encourage us to this end. In Jeremiah 29, we recall that, again, God gave some impressive instruction to the remarkable prophet of old. And amongst them, he said, My people, now this was shortly before the captivity came, My people are going to captivity. They need to pray earnestly that while in captivity, that those, the country in which they are, will be a peaceful one and that it shall be a country receptive to those things truthful and right. Ought not we be as earnest and urgent in such prayers today that leaders around the world in various places would come to know truth and would come to respond in faith to it? For would that not do away with terrorism if that were to happen? Would it not do away with the threat and difficulties of warfare, wherever it may be? The beautiful and the powerful means of prayer. No wonder the inspired apostle in 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 1, had thoughts like this in mind when he exerted, I exhort, brethren, first of all, that prayers, supplications, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, and especially for kings and for those in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. We often and frequently pray on behalf of our president and our congresspeople that, for those who make decisions that they would be guided by the thoughts and words of this book. How appropriate that prayer is. Why That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. It's our prayer that they will not make decisions separate and apart from consideration of the Word of God, but rather make them in light of the Word of God. To use the Scriptures to guide their prevalence in their thinking, to guide their approach to matters, be they domestic or international. That's an appropriate thing to pray for. Notice again the statement in Jeremiah 29.7. They ought to pray for this so that things would work out for their betterment. You and I, too, praying for presidents, kings, those in authority, can similarly so approach it and feel in ways much like that. Isn't it interesting to note that next text? When we make mention of prayer, lest we forget, might we think of James 5, 16, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Prayer is not an aimless activity. It's not something to consume a few minutes out of a day or even a few hours out of a week. It is an activity laden with meaning as we approach the sovereign God of heaven who is powerful enough to accomplish His will. Maybe in ways that you and I are not easily able to see and perceive, but His will will be accomplished. Oh, how then it is in our benefit to pray fervently and earnestly, Thus, in times of crisis, or as we perhaps imagine one on the horizon, to pray and pray earnestly that the matters concerning that event may be lifted or approached or addressed and that God may use the instrumentalities of this world to approach it, be it presidents, kings, parliaments, those in authority. It's a fair thing to say that that helps us ever remember that the ways of man are not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. In fact, is it not true that the matter seems entirely hopeless? If only we have humanity and his weaknesses to depend on, to avert nuclear war, to in fact address an international pandemic. Is it not far greater in comfort to appreciate the sovereign capabilities of a God who can address those matters, who can prevent them, who can take care of them? It's no wonder that God said to Noah in Genesis 8, verse 22, and this promise has been one that you and I focused on quite some bit as we had our Bible study on that text several months ago. But on Sunday morning as we studied it, with now the flood behind him, he and his family stepped off that ark to a whole new world, one that had been cleansed by water. But in that very situation in time, God said, While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. The factors concerning this planet are in someone's hands far higher than President Bush far higher than the ruling factor of the League of Nations, far higher than Vladimir Putin in Russia, far higher than all of those people. God said, as long as earth remains, these things are not going to cease. Isn't that a comforting thought? To help us face a crisis with a degree of confidence and assurance. That leads us to say, then, that there's one final thing, a fourth point that we can consider concerning a crisis. This fourth point has to do with where, of course, trust should be placed. And this third element has raced us to this point. We understand that men, the natures of the physical factors of this world, are not safe places, safe, secure places to place our trust. But rather, God is. This world, in so many ways, can be disappointing if we place our trust in it. No wonder the psalmist said in Psalm 146, verse 3, Place not thy trust in man. No wonder that's reiterated in Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9, which, by the way, is the middle verse in all the Bible. It's as though God wanted us to know that the place to put trust is not human beings. As we noted earlier, these factors, these matters of which we've discussed seem so great, and man seems so helpless to avert them and to solve the problems. But there is one who can solve them. The God of heaven not only fashioned this earth, he sustains it. Hebrews 1 verse 3. Day by day, that which occurs is due to his handiwork. As this earth rotates on its axis, as it's bathed in a life-giving atmosphere, as the water is there for our usage, those things didn't happen again by happenstance. It is the God of heaven who sustains it and who makes all those things possible. Consider thus some passages that remind us about where our trust should ultimately be. In Job thirteen fifteen, that great patriarch of olden days, though he himself was beset with a crisis, he'd lost all of his possessions in terms of flocks and camels. He'd even lost his children as they were, you may remember, they died when the house collapsed. Even his health was taken from him. And yet in verse 15 of chapter 13, he he could still say this, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. No matter what the difficulties of life may bring my way, I shall never cease to trust him. And the object of that word him was the God of heaven. Or consider a statement made by Jesus in Matthew 10, 28. He said, Fear not man, or fear not them which are able to kill the body but rather fear Him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus said, don't fear the character of this pure physical life alone, but understand that even if your life is taken from you, as it was from those many times in Revelation, if you've died in the Lord, you have a home in heaven waiting. Talk about a wonderful way to approach a crisis, to know that there's something far better waiting perhaps, that text that we saw earlier. I would encourage you to reread that with me, especially in light of what we've discussed so far this evening, that closing three verses of the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a small, minor prophet, but nonetheless the meaning of the book, as is the case for the other 65 in the Bible, is so very pertinent and so very amazing. A bit of history may be of benefit to us. The prophet Habakkuk labored as he prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah, And he prophesied to this people in about the year 604 B.C. That is to say, it was only about 16 years until they'd be taken into captivity. The time was drawing close. And yet in light of that event and in light of that coming situation, this is what Habakkuk said. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vine. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet will I rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God he is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds' feet, and he will make me to walk upon mine high places. If we were thus able to paraphrase some of that which we have just read, that noble prophet Habakkuk said, If the cupboard is empty... Even if the refrigerator is bare, if there's no gasoline in the car, the bank account is is non-existent. Even if the factors in my closet are virtually empty, I'm still going to trust in the God of my salvation, and he will make my feet like Heinz feet. He will lift me up to the chosen places. What a scene to help us approach a crisis. To place our trust not in what we can see, not in the things that may be around us day by day, but as he stated in verse 18, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will trust and joy in the God of my salvation. To approach a crisis in this way will be of great benefit for you and me to prepare ourselves to, to be ready. We may not ever face a crisis like they did in Habakkuk's day, but we might. We may face a similar one, or we may face one that is of great character, but quite different in some respects. But to face a crisis is something the Bible has information to help us do. Our study this evening thus has been a very serious one in many ways. Again, it's not my intent to cause us to think gloomy or worrisome thoughts, but rather it's just the opposite. Just like in Habakkuk's day, to approach these matters and prepare ourselves to understand that we live in a fallen world and that sin is rampant; that not only that, we as Christians are not exempt from the crises, catastrophes, and problems that so plague the things of this the things of this earth. We thus have learned in part number three the beautiful avenue of prayer and how that that's a place to which we can resort. I'm reminded of that scene when even our Savior faced a terribly great crisis you see the cross was in his future he resorted to a place called gethsemane and there he earnestly prayed but notice he prayed not my will but thine be done he prayed if it be thy will let this cup pass from me jesus in the flesh was facing a crisis and he resorted to prayer earlier we remember in the selection of his apostles those that would be the closest followers of his and those that would carry on the work by and large he prayed all night long, Luke 6, verse 12. Thus, may you and I also resort often to prayer, not only for our leaders and those in high places, but even for other things that crises and problems may be averted or lessened, and to pray that the gospel would have free course, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. As we've stated quite often, if only men would accept the gospel, thus we should pray that it will have free course, And that is in its proclamation, many shall come to realize the urgency of their situation and to respond in faith. But then finally, we noted this evening that besides prayer, to make certain to place our trust in the very hands of the one who, as our young people are often taught to sing, he holds the whole world in his hands. He told Noah that seed time and harvest would continue, that day and night, cold and heat, He also told through the prophet Habakkuk, trust in the Lord. Where have you placed your trust this evening? Have you placed it in the hands of the one who is a safe and secure place to have that trust placed? Or have you placed it in yourself? You and I are not safe places to place that eternal trust. We're weak. We're sinful. We're open to temptation and we often make bad decisions. May we place our ultimate confidence in the greatness of the one who not only can make sure usage of it, but will carry it trustworthy to its final end. Listen to this statement as we close our lesson this evening from 2 Timothy 1 verse 12. This is one of the statements by Paul as he neared the end of his life on this earth. As he made this statement, he said, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. You see, Paul had placed his trust in God and his trust in the Savior, and he was certain that it was in a safe and secure place. What about you and me this evening? Do you need to respond publicly to the gospel call of invitation? If you've never become a Christian, tonight would be the perfect evening for that to be done. Hear the word of God as you've done tonight. Believe Jesus to be the wonderful Son sent for the salvation of humanity. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His glorious name and then be immersed, baptized for the forgiveness of sins. If we could aid you in doing that, the baptismal waters are ready, everything's prepared. If you need, however, to return to your first love, having at one time known the safety and security of Jesus, but for whatever reason having rebelled against that and chosen your own way, remember the way of man is not in himself, Jeremiah ten twenty three. If we could assist you tonight in public prayer to rededicate your life, just as Simon did in Acts 8, we'd be honored to assist in that way as well. If either of these is the need of your life tonight, will you not let that be known in a public way while together we stand and while we sing?